late 18th century, whilst revolutions were breaking out in America and France, British public schools suffered their own outbreaks of violent disorder. Some of the most famous and prestigious elite schools in England, schools like Eton, Winchester, Harrow, Rugby, Merchant Taylors, were the sites of serious and violent pupil rebellions. Schoolmasters would be attacked and pelted with eggs and missiles, windows were smashed, buildings vandalised, roads blockaded, and in one case, pupils created a homemade bomb to blow open the headmaster's door to the school hall. Nowadays, British public schools are often seen as representing the unchanging stability of the British establishment, but this history of rebellion and upheaval shows that it is not that simple. And this history is also the subject of my co-host Lizzie Wells' PhD. Lizzie, in this episode and the next, you've got some absolutely brilliant material lined up for us because you are going to tell us more about what these rebellions look like and what might have caused them. There's some great detail here. Um, to kick off, tell us what era we're talking about. So I said late 18th century, but yeah, when exactly are we talking about and why did you choose to focus on this era? As you're so fond of saying with regards to assessment, history, like attainment, is this continuous line. And so any demarcations that we draw, any sort of lines in the sand are going to be artificial. And I don't want any of our listeners to think that I'm saying that pupil rebellions don't happen outside of the period that we're going to look at today. They definitely do. In fact, there's some really interesting ones. And maybe in the future episode, we can have a, a look at some of those. You know, you get quite kind of ritualized pupil disturbances in the sort of 16th and 17th century, where pupils symbolically bar their teachers out of the schoolroom. And then you and I are quite interested in the interwar period. And during that time, the Romilly brothers, who were cousins of Churchill and the Mitford sisters. I was literally just thinking of them. Giles Romilly has a great autobiography about his rebellions at Wellington College in the 30s, which culminate with him running off to fight in the Spanish Civil War, I think. So, so yeah, you're right. These, these things are kind of a bit of a constant. But yeah, what's the era you, you're focusing on here? So the era we're going to focus on today is from the later part of the 18th century. So we're going to kind of kick off in the 1760s. And then we're going to go through into the 19th century. And we're going to look in particular at a, a year, 1818, where a lot of rebellions take place. And then sort of through as they tail off in, into the 19th century. And it is, I, I said that there aren't discrete periods of history but there is a distinctive phenomenon that's going on here you know if you plot these pupil rebellions on a chart you do get this distinctive bell curve something is happening and that's what we want to look at today excellent very exciting so i gave a bit of a teaser as to what these rebellions are like at the start <laughs> they are quite violent <laughs> tell us tell us more about them what do they involve and how old are the students and yeah what's going on earlier rebellions in the 16th and 17th centuries they do exist, but they're often quite choreographed. There's quite a deliberate feel of like being a medieval Mardi Gras. There's planning that goes into them and a deliberate creation of a world being turned upside down with children being placed in charge and all the figures of authority being powerless. But that serves to affirm the status quo rather than undermine it. And then once you get into the into my period, into the, the 1760s, things start to be a bit different. The rebellions, they're not happening on these preordained occasions, but as a reaction to and, and sort of protest against specific events. And they often progress through a series of actions and escalate over a period of days. They often start quite small with pupils expressing dissatisfaction, you know, sometimes verbally 
or by hissing, like in a pantomime, you know, they, <laughs> they hiss their teachers. And then sometimes yeah. it's articulated a bit more clearly. There's a, perhaps a detailed letter or a petition with a round robin signature at the bottom. At Winchester in 1793, they actually write their letter of complaint in Latin. Um, so it's, it's quite sort of well thought through. If they don't get anywhere, if there's no response to that, they might step it up a notch. They might start to disrupt school proceedings, perhaps by occupying the school buildings themselves. And at Winchester, they take over the very conveniently designed medieval quad, which is perfect for setting up a siege. They barricade themselves into this quad. They start to dig up cobbles from the quad and carrying them up to, to a tower so they can use them as missiles to protect themselves. But in other schools, people just abscond. They, they leave altogether. At Eton in 1768, they go and walk down the river to a tavern in Maidenhead and spend the night getting drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds less like a riot than just, yeah, a lock-in, but yeah. Right, right, yeah. And so, so that's the next stage. And then we start to get vandalism. They destroy things which have a symbolic value. On one occasion at Eton, they destroy the headmaster's chair. And on another occasion, they destroy the block, which was used as a part of the ritual corporal punishment. Wow. Um, breaking windows, as you said, was quite popular. Throwing potatoes or stones at the windows. So go back to that block. So this, I understand, it's that it was a block where, if when the masters wanted to flog the students, what they'd put them over this block and flog them in public. Is that how it would work? Yeah, exactly. And then the rebellion is they destroy the block. They destroy it. They chop it up into pieces. A lot of the boys want a piece. They A lot of them take pieces as souvenirs. They become sought after. So it is a real rebellion against, well, in that case, I guess, with a flogging block, maybe what they perceive as sort of unjust punishments. It's not random destruction. And in fact, sometimes they, they often boast about the fact that they tend not to destroy the chapel or even vandalise the chapel in any way. So some things are sacred and then they target things like flogging blocks and, and what have you. And then sometimes specific individuals. So uh, Harrow, there's a big rebellion in 1770 and one of the governors makes the mistake of calling the boys who are rebelling blaggards. So blaggard, blaggard is one of these great 18th century words, isn't it? And it's actually, <laughs> yeah. if you see it written down, it looks like black guard. Am I right? Perfect. Yeah, that's right. It's up there with like a cad, isn't it? A cad and a blaggard. So the head of Harrow calls the students a blaggard and they're not... Not the head, actually, one of the governors. And personal honour is, you know, a really big thing in, in, in the 18th century. So these boys are not having this. And they actually go and they they seize his carriage... And they completely destroy it. They smash all the windows and they break it up. And then eventually they push it. Harrow's on a hill, so they push it down the hill. This is just a governor. It's a go- Why does he call them a blackguard? Well, because he thinks that they're being very... Uh, <laughs> getting above their station. Right. Expecting to have a say in how the school is run. Wow. And then they, and then they destroy his carriage. So. <laughs> Ouch. Sometimes they're violent towards people. It's, it's rarer, but it does happen. There are incidents in Harrow and Winchester where they run up the school porters because they want to get the keys to the buildings so they can take control of the, the property and then incidents where they do throw stones and eggs at schoolmasters and and sometimes sort of chase them and they you know they sort of run away and, and get frightened and barricade themselves in and like you say that some some of these quads some of these the, the geographic setup a lot of these old schools we're talking about some of the oldest schools in england right we talked in our public school episode about Winchester going back to the 15th century. And 14th. what you're saying is Winchester and Westminster, 14th, sorry. Winchester in particular, you're saying it's got this great setup 
where if you want to have a siege, <laughs> it's very well set up for that. Is that right? Yeah, defensive architecture. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Wow, okay. Tremendous, yeah. So sometimes then they have to get the local militia involved. There's incidents where soldiers come and sometimes magistrates. So you have a couple of incidents where the, the riot act is read. So that's a, a bit of legislation where the reading of the riot act effectively makes any gathering of more than 12 people illegal. If you carry on, you can be arrested and, and charged. Because this is before the first police forces. So you can't ring up your local police station and get them to come and help if you need outside help you're, you're calling in the militia effectively and, and sometimes it go it goes to that sometimes they're calling in the militia yep it, it definitely does at rugby the boys end up on this little island and the militia surround them and, and capture them at winchester they're forced out of the school they decide to leave they're told they can leave peacefully but actually once once they get out the militia chase them and how old are the boys how old are the boys we're talking about here so there's a real range some younger boys are inevitably do get sort of tied up in this so you do get 11 12 13 year olds but the ringleaders do tend to be the older boys so they do tend to be boys of sort of 17 18 and actually in some rebellions they're quite strict so they they refuse to let the younger boys sign the petition or, or get involved they they consider them, them not to be old enough or mature enough to make those decisions so we're calling them boys but really i guess they, they're young adults they're young men really um yeah and they're on the verge a lot of them of going off to university or maybe joining the army or whatever um and they're also physically young men so they're quite powerful so they're capable of, of violence yeah yeah um, and it's, it's difficult because you know the ratio of schoolmaster to pupils at this time is 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 not what we would expect today yeah and there's a lot of classic there's a lot of sort of classic political theory going on i've often felt this about teaching generally that you you do deal with then and now some of the classic issues of 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 political philosophy you know, what do you do when your authority is challenged? <laughs> and in the, the case of the, the state, that the whole point is the state has a monopoly on violence. But some of these schools don't really <laughs> have a monopoly on violence, it feels to me. As you say, there's not that many of them. There's a lot of quite physically fit young men. And if they suddenly want to start digging up cobbles and chucking them through the headmaster study, there's not an, a tremendous amount that the, 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 the headmaster's able to do about that. No. As we will see. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, so we talked a bit about what the rebellions look like. Um, so what, yeah, what is the cause of them? Do you want to tell us a bit more about, about the causes of them? Yeah, I want to be a bit naughty. I want to talk about three not causes, three myths that develop around these rebellions. I'm afraid I couldn't, couldn't make it seven. Tried. <laughs> the first myth that really sticks to these rebellions is this idea that they're completely spontaneous, uncontrolled outbursts. And that's something that you actually see quite a lot when people talk about young people and protest. And to a degree, it's supported by some of what we now understand about brain development in young people and the impact of hormones on teenage behaviour. But even back in the 18th century, this idea that teenagers had this inevitable restive period where they engaged in unpredictable behaviour was taking hold. And you can see it a lot in like writing of, of Rousseau. We've talked a little bit about Rousseau before in one of our earlier episodes and of course there is a kernel of truth in this but it's also a very convenient way to dismiss what might actually be a very legitimate action by young people they don't know what they're talking about or they're parroting ideas that they don't understand or they're being 
negatively influenced by by bad actors and that's it's something that we're still seeing today right with with young people and protests you're, you're saying they're not spontaneous they're not uncontrolled they're quite well thought through I mean you said one of them they write a letter in Latin well they're clearly not just that's not a, a something you come up with in, in on the spur of the moment is it that's they're sitting down and working at that no so they're definitely not coming out of nowhere the pupils are always protesting about something that has a direct impact on their lives okay you might always think that they're justified but yeah. you know that's that's another matter and and rather than being uncontrolled yeah they're carefully planned and as i was indicating they kind of progress there's a series of actions that they will escalate through when they don't get what they want De- definitely not spontaneous or uncontrolled and then your second yeah what's your second non-cause of these rebellions so the one you see most commonly is that it's all to do with the french revolution and you can see why people think that you know there's these all these revolution going on in france the pupils are just copying what they're hearing about over the channel and there are a lot of rebellions that do take place in the 1790s and it's, it's not surprising in a way that people want to liken them to what's going on in France it's it sort of feeds into the contemporary fears at the time uh what's happening in France could be spreading over here and there's also an element of reassurance with it too because the young people that they're, they're just simply succumbing to this malign foreign influence it removes any legitimacy to their action that they're, they're, they're not independent actors they're they're silly schoolboys who have been suckered in by what, what's going on abroad and there's certainly examples that you can find of the iconography of the french revolution being employed by pupil rebels so westminster in 1791 the pupils walk out of the schoolroom in protest and then they they gather nearby and start singing satara which is a popular french revolutionary song and at Harrow and Rugby, they make placards and they start talking about the rights of boys. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so you've got Amazing. the rights of man, yeah. the rights of boys. Yeah. But there's a few problems with the theory. I mean, first of all, if you've been listening closely, you'll have noticed that I've talked about a load of people rebellions happening in the 1760s. So well before revolution breaks out in France or, or even America. So we've definitely got our own homegrown pupil rebellions going on. And I mean, the main problem is that even if the pupils do co-opt some of the symbols of the French Revolution, there's not actually that much evidence that they're truly espousing Jacobin political ideas. There's a couple of cases where you get a hint of it, maybe. There's some boys at Westminster School who write to a newspaper and say that they're going to voluntarily remit the exercise of that despotic power which custom and a gothic system has placed in our hands. And, and what they're talking about here is the tradition of fagging, <laughs> so the tradition where younger pupils act mm. as slaves for mm. older boys and perform menial chores for them. That sounds promising. Think, oh, these Westminster boys, they've been inspired by the idea of egalité and fraternité, and they're, they're wanting to wipe away this awful hierarchy within the school. However... <laughs> When you dig a bit deeper, it seems like these pupils had these lofty aspirations, but they never really got round to actually enacting their okay. plan. There's this great letter that we have between two sons of James Boswell, the writer. So there, there's James Jr., who's the younger of the two brothers, and he writes to Alexander, who's at Eton. And Alexander's seen all these newspaper accounts, and he's absolutely fascinated by this. What's going on at Westminster? <laughs> and James replies, never was a greater hyperbole told in all this world and with less okay. foundation. Yeah. And I've got to say that rings true to me because if I had a pound for every public schoolboy I met who told me that they had abolished fagging or corporal punishment whilst they were a prefect, 
I would suddenly be considerably richer than I am now. So, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying that they're all liars, but often these changes are short-lived or they don't really get seen through an entire school. Okay. So what you're saying, is it fair to say that maybe some of these boys, they are showing off a bit about some of the language of the French Revolution, but that's not really actually deep down the cause of these rebellions? Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. And I think I'd almost go further than that. There's... An interesting incident that takes place at Merchant Taylor's school in 1796. And there are two boys at the school who genuinely do understand and espouse Jacobin ideals. So there's been Republican graffiti appearing on the walls leading up to the school. You'll probably say this better than than me, Daisy. One of the bits of graffiti says, a king without an egg. (laughs) A king without an head. <laughs> yeah, okay, <lovely>. great. <laughs> um, so it's pretty serious. And then that all comes to a head on Queen Charlotte's birthday. One of these two boys actually happens to live in the Tower of London. His father's a chaplain in the Tower. People still live there now. They do. In fact, I'm going to have a massive tangent here, but I was watching West Ham win the Europa Conference League back in June. And I was in my dad's, mum and dad's local in Wapping. And there were a couple of beef eaters there with us. And they still live in the Tower of London. So people forget that. You drive past it, there's washing <laughs> hanging out. There's little apartments in there. Sorry. So this, I was thinking this when you were telling me this story. So there's people who live in the Tower of London. What happens is worse than washing. What's worse than washing, yeah. Well, what happens is this boy, he drapes a tricolour flag, the French flag. Ouch. Um, Ouch. <laughs> French revolutionary flag. Oh, if you did that now, that wouldn't be good, would it? But you do it in 1796, that's naughty. <laughs> so, so this is spotted by all these people in the city hanging from the Tower of London. And this reminded me, this is a very performative act of rebellion, isn't it? this is designed to get attention and it did remind me of extinction rebellion and just stop oil that you're doing something that's just enormously yeah attention grabbing people are going to see that flag everywhere uh, and they're going to go my goodness there's a trickler hanging outside the tower of london it's incredibly inflammatory thing to do and kind of a lot of what you're saying here does sort of you know ring ring a few bells with um xr and just stop oil because it's actually a similar demographic in doing those protests often isn't it it's it's students from often quite wealthy privileged students from public schools from the same public schools we're talking about in the 1790s they're the same often often those students in those schools today are, are maybe doing similar attention grabbing protests like the ones in the national portrait gallery or what have you um just very high profile high profile stunts almost yeah so what happens with this flag it's up there for three hours is it yeah and they they take it down and they burn it right burn it very publicly but i guess what's what's interesting about this incident and the reason this incident features in my thesis is that this isn't actually the rebellion these two boys and their activities they're not the rebellion the rebellion is that the remaining pupils absolutely go wild right and demand that these two boys are expelled one of the boys and his father and actually um uh, an attorney a lawyer friend of theirs go to the school to try and plead the boy's case mm-hmm. and the rest of the pupils start throwing stones at them and, and chase chase them off the premises wow 
Wow. And they write a letter to the court of the merchant tailors, so the governing body of the school. Mm-hmm. And they say, I'm sorry, we kind of got a bit out of hand, but we were worried lest the loyalty, honour and dignity of our school should be implicated in the criminality <laughs> of those two boys. <laughs> so you've got two young Jacobins and the rest of the school want to dissociate themselves from any of this French trickler madness. Um, and, and actually that's what causes all the problems in some ways. Mm. And, and what's really telling is that rather than being reprimanded for their unruly behaviour, these boys are praised. Right. And the whole school is given an annual holiday to mark <laughs> Queen Charlotte's birthday and Brilliant. the school's loyalty to the crown from that Brilliant. point forward. Brilliant. So those two, those two boys feel like outliers. It doesn't feel like they are representative of the wider school school body. Definitely not. Like you, like you said, it's it's something that is a tool. Yeah, yeah. These yeah. these bits of the French Revolution, it's something that they'll use mm-hmm. if it's useful, mm-hmm. if it's going to cause a stir. But there's very little evidence that they sincerely believe in in those kind of principles. That was your second myth that these actually the, a lot of these rebellions don't really have much to do with the, the French Revolution. They start before the French Revolution. And a, a lot of the, the language that they use isn't that deep rooted. And, and even where there are convinced Jacobins, they're, they're a minority. And then your third myth, what's your what's your third myth? That's uh, your third non-cause of these rebellions. So people like to say that these rebellions, they take place because these schools are these corrupt ancient regimes and they're just ripe to be toppled. Now, you and I, I think we've had a bit of a Victorian loving in previous episodes. <laughs> Do you have, think that's fair to say? We have, we definitely have, yes. <laughs> Possibly too much, so. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring us back to earth here. I'm gonna balance <laughs> things out a bit. Yeah. One thing I would say about the Victorians is that they were very guilty of painting the period immediately before them as being a complete disaster, perhaps rather unjustly. And that's not to say that the Victorians aren't in many ways very radical and make a lot of very interesting changes. We see this today with governments all the time. They, they, they want to exaggerate the failings of their predecessor mm-hmm. because then they look better by comparison. And it doesn't really fit actually. The pupils aren't rebelling because their dormitories are cold and uncomfortable and they want better pastoral care. Very occasionally the food is mentioned as part of their protests. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about pickled beef, Daisy? Pickled beef, yeah, I could, you know, could live with pickled beef, yeah. Well, they're not happy about pickled beef. The pupils at Shrewsbury are not happy about pickled oh, beef. Oh, you know. And they kick off about it. It's decadence, isn't it? <laughs> 18th century decadence. You know, what, beef and liberty. The food of old England. Alright. Okay, so there's a little bit of food, but go on. But we did a whole episode about, about Roald Dahl being a public school in, in the 20th century. It's it's definitely not that the conditions improve, improve drastically as, as the century progresses. And if you think about rebellions and, and disorder, they tend not to be because the status quo is bleak. You often talk about that with, with countries which as communist states uh, crumble and fall. You know, it, it's not continuity that leads to, to rebellions. It's when things start to change and even when things start to improve a little bit, actually, that the all hell breaks loose. Yes, you're absolutely right. So the, the, the theory of revolutions in countries is often that you get a revolution not when things are unbearably bleak. But as you say, when there's just any sign of crack, a crack in the, in, the, in the authority or paradoxically, as things are improving, that when things look like they're improving, sometimes actually that can almost weirdly spark um, more of a revolution than when, as you say, things are, are, are constant. So what you're saying is you don't think these rebellions are being sparked by conditions being particularly awful or horrific or a particularly corrupt old regime. You don't think that is the case? 
So you're probably wondering at this point what is my theory. This is this is my next yeah. This one. So what is it like? What what is the what is the thing that causes? And it is a real rash of them over this this period of time. So so what I think is happening is that the pupils perceive quite correctly that schoolmasters are trying to encroach on their privileges and their independence. And a lot of the time, the rebellions are being triggered by maybe a punishment that they feel is unjust or the decision of schoolmasters to try and curtail pupil privileges, including bagging or an attempt to impose greater restrictions on what the pupils are doing in their time outside of the classroom. So actually, what you could be saying here is, is it maybe an intra-elite intra-elite conflict because these students are the the kind of rising elite aren't they they're the kind of that they're young but they're from privileged wealthy families they're going to be assuming positions of power and actually in some ways they're socially superior to some of the, the the masters and the teachers class definitely does come into it sometimes so some some of their headmasters are looked down on by the pupils for being of a lower social class and what you're saying this is a period in time when the headmasters and the teachers are attempting to maybe assert some new kinds of authority over the 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 students and they're just not having it and part of the reason they're doing that is that there's increasing competition to these public schools there's competition from private schools that are being run at that time and parents they've been reading they've been reading their research they're perhaps a little bit more active in their concerns for their children so the teachers are trying to respond to that and they're trying to change these schools they're trying to do a little bit more pastoral care and often they're religiously motivated too so you think about a bit of an anglican revival beginning to come in here they're wanting to do more for the pupils pupils aren't having it <laughs> so actually you're kind of what you're flipping on your head here is I suppose, yeah, when I first heard you talking about this, I just assumed, oh, my God, they're probably these schools are like prisons. They're horrible places and the boys are rebelling because, yeah, they're getting terrible food and terrible conditions. But actually, then when you dig into it, I mean, let's take the really famous one of the most famous rebellions, the 1797 rugby school one. Actually, when you look at the details of that, the, the boys it's triggered by something the boys do. That's actually pretty bad that I think nowadays we think would pretty, be pretty bad, which is that some of the boys basically pinch some gunpowder from a local shopkeeper um is that right it's a bit of a question mark so i think they buy it and i think the shopkeeper then becomes a bit embarrassed that he sold it to them and and lies about it and so i think it's another one where the honor comes in one way or another the boys acquire some 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 gunpowder and then they start firing bullets at one of the housemasters so this is not a protest about oh the food's not very good (laughs) This is they're just they're they're just kicking off almost. <laughs> and then the headmaster tries to do something about it and then they blow his door in. In a sense, you can say what you're saying, actually, it's maybe that the headmaster and the masters are all trying to impose some element of, of rule of law and morality <laughs> that hasn't been there before. And the boys are kicking off because they're not used to these constraints on their behaviour. Yeah. One of the things that often triggers rebellions are extra roll calls uh, sometimes they're called absences so one of the things the schoolmasters do because they're they're having problems with these schoolboys running around for long periods of time in the evenings when school's finished and a lot of these boys also have independent wealth you know they have things like their own carriages and, and they have firearms in order to try and restrict some of that activity they instigate roll calls at least they've got to return to school at a certain time and it cuts how far away they're able to get and how disordered they're going to be. Pupils absolutely hate it. They hate any kind of restriction being imposed on them. And this is upper middle class or upper class version of what we talked about in the absenteeism episode, where you've got Victorian do-gooders basically trying to enforce school attendance 
on some of the poorest in society. What you've got here maybe are proto-Victorian do-gooders trying to enforce morality and school attendance on the upper classes. Is that is that a fair way of looking at it? Yeah, yeah. Or, or certainly behavioural controls, yeah. So that's your that's your cause. So that's your, your ultimate cause, yeah. There is another element to this, which is worth mentioning. It's not entirely coincidental that if you look at this spate of rebellions and you map it, it aligns very neatly with the rise and fall of the jewel. Anyone who's been to see Hamilton, for example, will, will be very familiar with the process of jewel and personal honour. And there's a sense that pupils are choosing rebellion as a bit of a rite of passage. It's a way of asserting their masculinity and their status as a gentleman and their seniority, their, their adulthood and a lot of the rebellions actually involve boys taking oaths so they're promising to be loyal to one another and they agree that if one of them is punished or expelled the rest of them will all leave as well which if you're a headmaster puts you in a really difficult position and it's a period where the ideal of masculinity is beginning to shift it's moving from something where it is perhaps quite tied up with honour and aggression and it gradually gets replaced with an ideal of masculinity that's perhaps more associated with repression with having a a stiff upper lip but obviously it takes a little while for these schoolboys to get that memo (laughs) so so they they lag a little bit behind the rest of society there that makes lots of sense so yeah sort of the shift you say from an honour culture to what is it people say a dignity culture and and I always find that just so fascinating. It's like that thing where people say, when do people stop wearing hats? You, know, you look at old pictures and everyone wears a hat. And then suddenly in the 60s at some point, they stop wearing hats. When do people stop fighting a duel? When do people say, actually, no, I'm just going to have a stiff upper lip and ignore that insult and move on gracefully? Uh, instead of saying, right, you know, pistols at dong. <laughs> and what you're saying is this is kind of the changeover. And maybe you've got some headmasters who are actually probably representing the vanguard of this movement and the boys are maybe lagging behind a little bit. So that's the reason that you think these riots happen. You've convinced me. But whilst you've convinced me, maybe I'm not the, the best person to be convinced because the thing I felt about all of this, well, I didn't know any of this before you told me about it. And it feels to me, and when I tell people about it, about all these public school rebellions and these boys from these prestigious schools chucking cobbles off the top of the quad or whatever people are really surprised when I tell them this too and and, and quite intrigued <laughs> and it, as I say it does feel to me like this is relatively little known a little bit of a secret history you might not feel like that obviously because it's your PhD and you've been immersed in it for however many years <laughs> but I think for the rest of us it is a bit of a surprise and I think maybe one of the reasons for that is it's not something anyone really has an incentive to want to know about kind of politically I feel like both on the right and on the left people are invested in a very different version of these schools histories and if I'm going to be sort of blunt I said at the start didn't I that the reputation of these schools is probably as they're a, they're a representation of, of, of timeless stability bulwark of Britishness you, you know the old buildings with the ivy crawling over them I feel like on the right the, the right-wing version of maybe of these schools is as powerful and unchanging forces for good. On the left, they would want to portray them as powerful and unchanging forces, but not for good, for, for bad. <laughs> but nobody really on either side has an interest in portraying these schools as quite chaotic basket cases that are, are, are riven by violence and dissent and even incompetence. 
And that doesn't fit anyone's narrative. So it feels like that's what I'm saying. You, you don't hear this because it, it doesn't suit any, 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 anybody. Has there been a way in which you and you've been investigating this? Are some of the schools themselves a bit wary about talking about it? Like, How have you found researching it and investigating it? Yeah, I think what you've said is really astute. I will come on to the schools. But first, in terms of academic history as a discipline, there's plenty of historians who've looked at what you'd often term crowd movements or basically rioting and rebellion, which is rife in this period and in no way unique to to schools. You know, anyone who's watched Poldark, for example. Love Poldark. Uh, love yeah, Poldark. Love Poldark yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be used to this idea that, you know, there, there, there are there's serious unrest that's commonly going on in the country. And no police force. Yeah, there, there's there's three big historians who've looked at this. There's a guy called Georges Rude, there's Eric Hobsbawm, who's perhaps the most famous, and, and E.P. Thompson. Um, and they're all, all historians who are coming at it from the left. And they're all historians who are sort of trying to look for a proto-working class too. So this sort of rebellion does not interest them because it doesn't really fit in with the kind of thesis that, that they're wanting to put forward. In some ways, it was it was great for a PhD because it was a topic that hadn't really had all that much work done on it. And then the schools themselves, it's really interesting. So very few of the school's official histories mention rebellions at all. <laughs> Certainly not in, in any great detail there's been a few recent books which have discussed them but they've relied a lot on on secondary sources and that means that often errors and exaggerations do then get perpetuated i don't think the schools now are trying to cover them up or continue to cover them up but they they have been covered up in the past yes and you can see why you can see why i mean (laughs) yeah nobody comes out of this in glory not the students not the not the teachers not the governors. <laughs> it's been good because when you actually go back to the contemporary accounts, and there are quite a lot of contemporary sources surviving out there, there's letters and diaries by pupils, parents, schoolmasters, there's lots of newspaper accounts. There's actually quite a lot of detail that's been overlooked and particularly overlooked if it reflects the pupil voice because people still aren't always that interested in what children believe or think. I might give you an example, which I think is quite interesting. So so one of the things that's often repeated about the Winchester Rebellion in 1793, and if you read any popular account of this rebellion, which is a big rebellion, you'll, you'll read this, is that the boys make red liberty caps. So they don the liberty cap, this symbol of the French Revolution at that point that period. And I was always a little bit skeptical about this because as I indicated these boys they're they're running a siege. Yeah. So they're yeah. in this medieval quad. Mm. They've not had that much time to prepare for the siege and in fact mm. they they don't really have enough food. Yeah. So the idea that they had yards of red fabric to hand to start fashioning yeah. these hats out of. Yeah. <laughs> seemed seemed a little bit strange. Right. And then when I started to look into the original sources, I couldn't find any mention of, of these liberty caps, despite the fact that we've got a couple of really detailed accounts of the rebellion, one from a schoolmaster who would definitely want to mention it if it had happened, uh, definitely to help his case, and one from the rebels, which is also you know pretty pretty detailed. And eventually I found that there was a single letter that mentioned this fact. And it's a letter that's written by one of the fathers of the rebels. And he'd been visited. He hadn't seen his son, but he'd been visited about a week after the rebellion 
by the wife of the headmaster, who I'm not convinced was at Winchester at the time of the rebellion. (laughs) And then she apparently goes and sees him and furnishes him with what he actually describes as being a confused account (laughs) of the rebellion. And it's in this letter that the Liberty Cats are mentioned. So what we're dealing here is like a single reference from a third-hand account. Must be the brilliant thing. I've not done a PhD, but that must be the brilliant thing about doing a PhD, that you have this long accepted narrative about these Liberty Caps. And actually, when you dig into it, it's built on sand when you dig into that research. Yeah, it's really satisfying and makes you a terrible bore at dinner parties, Daisy. (laughs) But also reinforces your point about how maybe the the, the French Revolution influence is not as great as as might be said. It's, yeah, as you say, these these Red Liberty Caps are, are not as big a feature and there are other things going on. And as I say, I am persuaded i guess by your view that this is almost uh maybe almost a different kind of culture war a culture war between as i say you know victorian victorian do-gooders imposing a new morality on on 18th century boys coming to the end now the thing i'd want to sort of wrap up on is i think one of the most interesting things about studying the past is obviously the light it sheds on the present and you can't get away from that you're always looking at it through the lens of of today we've talked a bit already about just stop oil extinction rebellion what have you and typically in, in other episodes of this podcast we've looked at a lot of things about about schools in the past and i think sometimes we've been a bit chastened by them so we've looked at how hard the first exam papers were we've looked at the incredible work ethic of working class autodidacts and we've also looked at the way that some of the earliest head teachers of the first girls' schools also found time to climb the Matterhorn twice, <laughs> right? Which we also established you've never climbed the Matterhorn once. Have you, Daisy? I haven't asked you. <laughs> I'll let you get away I've with been... that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I shouldn't have pushed it. I've never climbed the Matterhorn. Um, <laughs> so look, we both of us, as I've said before, it has been a few times where I've been moved to say, given um, you know, our personal failings when it comes to, to Alpine Mountains, um, maybe we're a fallen people. Are we a fallen people in comparison with the past? But the stories you're telling today, they are a massive corrective to that point of view. I don't look at this and think, oh, we're a fallen people. I'm looking at this and going, cool, we've come a long way. <laughs> because what you're saying, you know, showing here, it's, it's, there's really unpleasant violence. Yeah. It is unpleasant. And, you know, you haven't sort of dwelt on it, but, you know, from the masters as well, like there's this head at Eton, was it Jonathan Keats who's just flogging 60 kids because they're late for roll call oh we'll definitely come on to Keat don't worry Daisy I've got lots of stuff on Keat we'll do him in the next ones and another thing as well is aside from all of these riots a lot of the stories you're telling there make me think when did they find the time to learn you know they're spending all this time plotting rebellions and writing letters and flogging when are the kids learning algebra and when are the teachers thinking about pedagogy like it's not happening is it well look if nothing else at least we don't allow pupils to have firearms in schools anymore rebellion where they actually they have a homemade bomb they make a homemade bomb blowing the headmaster's door i mean that i kept thinking I don't know if our foreign listeners have heard of Catherine Burble Singh, but she's probably Britain's strictest headmistress, Catherine Burble Singh. And I kept, I kept thinking, what would she do if the kids you know, blew open her door with a bomb? Um, I thought maybe we should invite her on the podcast and get her to see because, uh, you know, these are these are big questions. I think, look, I, I, I read all this and everything you've said and it makes you think, well, maybe things nowadays are not as bad as, as they could be. On that cheery note, should we, should we wrap up there? And we'll come back next time and talk about some of the consequences for the for the students and for the schools of these of these rebellions. That sounds perfect. <laughs>